You're listening to the first lesson in a series on the life and message of the prophet Amos. I'm very excited about this. I've been working on it for many weeks. There are quite a few lessons, and right now we're going to have the introduction. Each lesson will cover anywhere between a few verses and an entire chapter. Today, we look at the opening of Amos. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion, and utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. To understand the intro to Amos, to understand the book, we have to appreciate the background. What is happening in Israel? Who is the king of Judah? Who is the king of Israel? What is the earthquake? Why is the Lord so angry? And to understand that, we have to go back in time, even further than the time of Amos. Amos dates from the 8th century. The problems can be traced back at least to the 10th century B.C. And I'd like to do that right now. So, a little bit of refresher, a little bit of the history of Israel must be recapped. There was a lot of division, acrimony, between the followers of Saul and the followers of David. Saul became the first king, and eventually, once David was king, there was a united kingdom. This is in the 11th century BC. David becomes king around 1010 BC. These dates, and all dates I mentioned in the series, are just approximate, and they can be easily overturned by further discoveries and solid scholarship. Saul, David, Solomon. Solomon is David's son who comes to the throne in Jerusalem. But the fourth king, Rehoboam, is very harsh. He's young, inexperienced, and mature, and in his insecurity, he's overreaching, overstepping, and he thinks that brute force will be enough to move the kingdom. People don't like this. They don't have to take it. And one of Solomon's officials, a man named Jeroboam, rebels. What does he do? Who is this man Jeroboam? I'm going to read the end of First Kings 12, because again, to understand the prophet Amos, and this is two centuries later, we have to understand what happened earlier as the United Kingdom of Israel was breaking apart. Jeroboam rebels against Rehoboam. Rehoboam is leading the southern kingdom, which is now called Judah. And the name of Israel is given to the northern kingdom. 1 Kings 12, 25-33 Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. 
And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king took counsel and made two calves of gold. And he said to the people, You have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And he set up one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Then this thing became a sin, for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples in high places, and appointed priests from among all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices on the altar. So he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. He went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day of the eighth month, and the month that he had devised from his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel, and went up to the altar to make offerings. What does Jeroboam do to maintain control? He sets up not only a revival kingdom, he sets up a rival rival religion with its own shrines, including amazingly golden calves. Of course, that transports us mentally right back to Exodus 32, while Moses is receiving the true law of God on the mountain. The people, under Aaron's weak leadership, are receiving and worshipping a golden calf. A calf or a bull was commonly worshipped in Canaan as a symbol of vigor, sexuality, fertility, um, agricultural productivity, and so forth. So we have rival shrines, not only in Dan, which is at the extreme north of Israel, but even in Bethel, which is in the south. When I say south, I don't mean the south of the entire land. It's not south of Jerusalem, but it's in the southern part of the kingdom of Israel, which is north of the kingdom of Judah. It's actually very close to Jerusalem. And so when people would go to Bethel, they would be influenced not to go to Jerusalem because they've gone far enough. And and he plays on their fatigue. Jeroboam plays on their desire for an easier religion. He says, you've been making that long trek to Jerusalem too much, too long. Let's make it simpler now. You only have to go to Bethel or Dan. So there are rival shrines. There's a rival priesthood. And the priests that Jeroboam authorizes are not Levites. In fact, anyone can do it if the price is right. This low standard of leadership reminds me of the ease with which men, often morally uh, bankrupt, devoid of character, uh, could purchase uh, the right to be a bishop or a priest in the Middle Ages in church history, this low standard of leadership. He also institutes rival holidays because he knows that these holidays that that were instituted in the law are times of joy and there's a lot of memory, a lot of good memories. Um, This was something that not only kept the people pure in their heart but maintained the solidarity of the land, of the nation. So as they're two nations, he doesn't want people to be tempted to reunify. So there are rival holidays to prevent 
northern Israel from choosing to blend the two religious systems. He wants them to follow only his system. And he does this, and he's immediately challenged by a prophet, an unnamed prophet, in 1 Kings 13. But our study is on Amos, not 1 Kings. But you've got to know a little bit of the background. Now we fast forward a couple hundred years, and the king on the southern throne is Uzziah, who is well known. On the northern throne, it's Jeroboam. You say, wait, Jeroboam is still alive 200 years later? This is a different Jeroboam. This is Jeroboam, son of Joash, not Jeroboam, son of Nebat. And this Jeroboam, scholars call Jeroboam II. But really, like all the kings of northern Israel, they're men of low standards, they're unscrupulous, they're compromisers, and they see no problem with a bit of false religion as long as it's good for business. So, now we're in the 8th century, that is the 700s B.C., and we, are, we find these, these men introduced, Amos, who's our man, Uzziah and Jeroboam, who are the kings, and of course, the Lord. We can date uh, Amos's oracles by the fact that they're in the reigns of uh, Jeroboam and Uzziah, and also, uh, in chapter 7, the false priest of Bethel, whose name is Amaziah, and he dies about 767. Since he's mentioned, that's another indicator that these oracles come from the middle of the 700s B.C. Now, the other Old Testament portion that we must be familiar with to appreciate Amos, in fact, to appreciate any of the prophets, are the parts of the law that deal with covenant faithfulness, God's promises, and God's punishments. The easiest place to review this, if you're fuzzy, is the end of Leviticus. Look at chapter 26, or near the end of Deuteronomy in chapter 28. And there the Lord promises, if the people are faithful, physical, economic, military success, national blessings. They tend to be very material blessings, because that's the way God dealt with Israel, in quite a physical, economic, political way course today it's an entirely different situation with the church these passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy also talk about what will happen if the people forsake the covenant if they fail to love the Lord and some of the things mentioned are agriculture failure uh, anxiety physical pain fear dread about the future even uh, exile that God would in a point at which there was nothing further to be done. He would allow a foreign army to come and deport the people and take them away from the promised land. Those are God's promises. Those are God's punishments. And as we see in the prophets and as we see in the later parts of the historical books, they were not idle threats. The Lord carried through. One other event that's mentioned in Amos 1.1 is the earthquake. It speaks of it as though all the hearers or readers of Amos know what it is. The earthquake. Apparently, this is the earthquake that took place in 742 B.C. It was an earthquake in the days of Isaiah. In Zechariah 14.5, which is written much later, refers back to that earthquake. So sometime, apparently, after Amos delivered these stinging oracles, 
there was an earthquake which would have made it uh, would have given great credibility to the prophet to his message and we'll, we'll see this as we go through one other piece of background information before we dig into the message we have to understand what's going on on the economic scene in the mid 8th century that's the 700s 760 750s it's a boom time it's a time of thriving international trade it's a time when the nations surrounding Israel are too distracted or too weak to constitute a serious threat so it seems it's a time where domestic business international trade are going so well that a larger and larger upper class a leisured upper class who lives live lives of leisure has come into being and their lifestyle is decadent and Amos gives us several glimpses of what these people are like their indolence their uh, their substance abuse their callous disregard for the poor in the notes that accompany this podcast in the notes that accompany all the podcast you'll see these verses I read and you'll the verses that I, I just refer to so what's going on it's a time of great success economically it's a boom time as we know bubbles can burst this bubbles getting bigger and bigger but as the rich get richer the poor get poorer well this goes directly against the law of Moses because the law of Moses is all about loving God and loving our neighbors ourself caring for those who are less advantaged well who is this man Amos Amos is the earliest of the so-called writing prophets when I say writing prophets we have people like Elijah and Elisha They're not really writing prophets maybe we have a letter of theirs but there's no book named after them there's no book like Jeremiah or Hosea Amos is the earliest writing prophet and of the twelve minor prophets he's also the earliest he's a contemporary of Isaiah Hosea and Micah he's a shepherd and when he gets into confrontation with the false priest at Bethel and this is in chapter 7 which is quite a few lessons from now he gives us just a little bit of, of, of insight into his life he's warned by this false prophet to go back to the south go back to Judah and prophesy there and Amos answers and I'll read from 714 uh, to 15 Amos answered and said to Amaziah I was no prophet nor a prophet's son but I was a herdsman and a dresser of sycamore figs but the Lord took me from following the flock and the Lord said to me go prophesy to my people Israel so what did Amos do before he was called to be a prophet he may have only been a prophet for a couple of years some scholars think just for a few weeks it was a short period of time he was a man of the land he was a man of the flock he was a shepherd and that meant that while he may have had a home he would have moved from place to place with the flocks he also looked after these fig trees these sycamore fig trees and part of cultivating them was tending them and and slitting the figs as they were beginning to ripen which would uh, help them to, to 
would expedite the process and, I guess, make for better figs. So this is what he did, and he lived in Tekoa. Well, we know where Tekoa is because um, there's a, it's easily locatable on the map. It's the modern Arab village of Tekoa. It's about half a mile above sea level. The wilderness of Tekoa, or Tekoa, goes down thousands of feet, um, well over a kilometer, uh, to the east, uh, towards the, the Dead Sea and the desert. Tekoa, the village, is about five or ten miles south of Jerusalem. And it's mentioned in other places in the Old Testament. Well, why is this significant? Because Amos is not preaching in Tekoa. He's not dealing with all the problems in Jerusalem. The southern kingdom of Judah had many problems of its own. He's called to go to the north, to Israel. And Israel, the capital is Samaria. The shrines are in Dan and Bethel. He's a southerner called to preach up north. Be like a man from Alabama starting a ministry in Albany. You'll be like a preacher from New Orleans becoming a missionary in New England. If someone from Mississippi went to Massachusetts, there would be some prejudice. There still is if you live in the United States. When I left the South as a boy of almost eight years old and went to the North, for me, it was going to New Jersey. I was made fun of because, well, I looked different. I certainly sounded different. And I lost my southern accent just as fast as I could. I was made fun of. Amos, in other words, was an outsider. Sometimes outsiders can see much more clearly what's going on with a system that's gone amok. When things have gone off the rails... The outsider can see it much more quickly than the insider, who's just too used to it, too comfortable. Interestingly, Amos's name in Hebrew means load or burden. Well, what was his burden? With what message had the Lord loaded him? Once again, I'd like to read the opening two verses, which is as far as we'll get in this lesson. The words of Amos, who was among the shepherds of Tekoa, which he saw concerning Israel in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel, two years before the earthquake. And he said, The Lord roars from Zion. He utters his voice from Jerusalem. The pastures of the shepherds mourn, and the top of Carmel withers. You know, the Lord's voice roars. We'll come across this image in chapter 3. The lion has roared, who will not fear. The Lord God has spoken, who can but prophesy. Amos has no choice. He cannot help but to fear, to prophesy, to pay attention to the message of the Lord. It's a very intense message. The Lord roars, he utters his voice from Jerusalem, which is interesting. Zion and Jerusalem refer to the south. Amos is coming from the south. More significantly, the true Lord should be worshipped in the south, not in the north, among the people where Amos's message is landing. It says the pastures of the shepherds mourn. Oh, well, what's wrong? What's happening? Is this economic boom not going to continue? 
And he says the top of Carmel withers. Carmel, Mount Carmel is a place that's usually green. This is one of the highest uh, places in Israel. And Amos and his message will be very specific about what their sins are. And he will talk about a spiritual drought in images of a literal drought. Amos is a mixture of poetry and prose. That's characteristic of, of almost all of the prophetic literature. Also, common in the prophetic literature is the mixture of judgment and restoration oracles. That is, you'll get uh, the, the specific uh, sentence, the reason the Lord's uh, unhappy with his people, which terms of the covenant they're violating, and it always points back to the law of Moses, and then the punishments that were predicted that will inevitably follow. And then after the judgment oracles, there'll be restoration oracles. There's a bit of hope. And these oracles normally alternate, sometimes really quickly. So in the prophets, you're reading about the terrible news, and then one verse later, oh, it's going to be fantastic. And six verses later, it's going to be negative again. This rapid alternation, rapid cycling of judgment and uh, restoration, judgment and blessings. But in Amos, it's not really like that. Little hope is expressed at all till the very end of the book. In other words, Amos is primarily negative. Perhaps for that reason, some suggest that you should really read Amos with Hosea. Amos, we see God's sternness. In Hosea, we see his kindness, his mercy. Remember what Paul said in Romans, Behold, the kindness and the sternness of God. They're two sides of the coin. It's not two coins, it's one coin. So if you read Hosea with Amos, you see how God's heart is breaking. And Hosea does such a marvelous job of showing God's care for his people, how much their spiritual adultery hurts him. Amos doesn't deal with that, and yet the theology and the imagery of Amos, regardless, are very, very deep. What are the points that Amos makes? One is that religion without righteousness is worthless. Some people might say, well, don't get carried away. Let's live all, let's live a life of moderation. Let's not go too far. Let's make the compromises we need to make. Let's not get bent out of shape. With the Lord, it's really all or nothing. As in Malachi, would that someone would shut the doors. If you're going to compromise, it's better not even to play the game. As Jesus said in Revelation 3, better nothing than just to be lukewarm. Cold is even better than lukewarm. Religion without righteousness is worthless. A second thread that runs through Amos is that how we treat others reflects the quality of our relationship with God. You're not really right with God if you're not right with your fellow man. And so if you want to read another book concurrently with Amos, perhaps you will. Read James. Amos is the James of the Old Testament. Or perhaps James is the Amos of the New Testament. No other prophet so carefully scrutinizes and condemns the justice system in Israel as Amos. In preparing for this series, of course, my main text was the nine chapters of Amos. But I also read three commentaries, two that were, they were all serious, but two that were on the lighter side, one that was uh, quite scholarly. And I'm going to be bringing to you the benefits of my study of the text and of the commentaries as we go throughout. And occasionally I'd like to share some quotations. And so one of them, it's from a scholar 
whose name is uh, David Hubbard. He writes very well. Please listen. The sum total of his visions and oracles is contained in a single word. No. Amos pulls out all the literary and theological stops to play this negative theme at full volume. Israel, notably the political, economic, and religious leaders, are held accountable. They have said no to Yahweh. Yahweh is the name of God in the Old Testament. They said no to Yahweh in every area of their lives. The list of their crimes would fill an outsized police blotter, enslaving their countrymen for petty debts, perverting justice for the disadvantaged, practicing incest, exacting harsh taxes, throttling the prophets who would condemn such deeds, maintaining an extravagant lifestyle at the expense of the poor, failing to heed the warnings implicit and their experiences of disaster, engaging in religious exercises that were both insincere and tainted with paganism, presuming that the Lord's future held only blessings for them, resting securely in their military prowess and invulnerable defenses, peacocking in their covenant privileges, while ignoring God's sovereign care of other nations. Oh, I think he puts that really well. You see, idolatry has no ethical demands. If you're going the pagan route, just go through the motions. You don't really have to live a life of virtue. Amos rejects all of this. True religion is invalidated. We don't love our fellow man. And that's nothing general or vague. It means in our daily dealings, we need to love our neighbor as ourself. Maybe the most famous verse from all of Amos which became even better known in my country during the Civil Rights Movement, is 524. Amos has just said, Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. And so that's the second thread. How we treat others reflects the quality of our relationship with God. Third, God isn't only interested in the covenant people. He's not just interested in Israel. He's concerned about the nations. We too should have an international view. Well, that is actually, to me, one of the most exciting messages of Amos. And I remember when I first took an Old Testament class when I was at Duke University, and the professor was emphasizing some really cool verses in chapter 9 of Amos and it opened my eyes. I was a young Christian just uh, two years in the Lord. I, to say that this lit a fire in me would be a great understatement. It changed the way I read the prophets. It changed the way I looked at the world and, and it led to my, my desire a couple years later to join friends on a mission planting. And I moved to Europe and lived there for many years. God is concerned about the nations. And the fourth thread is that Israel will be punished. There are 15 or 16 oracles in Amos, and they're, they're virtually all messages of doom. So you may find other threads. There's certainly many themes and sub-themes. But I'm highlighting religion without righteousness is worthless. 
How we treat others reflects the quality of our relationship with God. God isn't only interested in the covenant people. He's concerned with the nations. And because it's been unfaithful, Israel will be punished. Amos has had tremendous influence. In the Old Testament, Amos significantly influenced Isaiah, Jeremiah, and other prophets. You can see them quoting from Amos. You can see them uh, using the, the same themes. Amos also had an impact in the New Testament. And there are a couple of New Testament quotations which we'll deal with later on in this series. In our own day, as mentioned, Amos provided uh, inspiration for the civil rights movement. It informs the social consciousness of many churches today. And even in our own lives, Amos can play a valuable part. It can sensitize our consciences. If the ancient... Israelites were held responsible to practice the righteousness of the God whom they worshipped. Aren't we even more responsible to take a stand for the justice of God? Well, that's the introduction. Next time, we'll begin in chapter 1, verse 3, and go to chapter 2, verse 5. But I'd like to close with another quotation, a poignant quote from one of those three commentaries I read in preparing for this series. And this comes from the Uh, from the uh, Tyndale series and we'll close with these words the words of Amos burst upon the landscape of the northern kingdom Israel with all the terror and surprise of a lion's roar though their main targets were the palaces of Samaria and the shrines at Bethel and Gilgal the prophet's words were to resound throughout Israel's entire landscape, leaving no part nor person unscathed.